Hello and welcome to Tailwinds, the Air and Space Operations Review podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Laura Thurston Goodrow. Today, we will be visiting with Army Colonel Walter Richter, the U.S. Army Attaché at the U.S. Embassy in Berlin, Germany, about his article in the fall 2021 issue of Air and Space Power Journal, entitled Combating Russian Influence Through Improved Security Assistance. Welcome to Tailwinds, Colonel Richter. Thank you for having me. I just, it's a really, it's a great honor to be here with you on this podcast. And this is really a very important topic to me, especially as I've worked as a security assistant, a professional in Europe, both at a U.S. embassy, as well as at a U.S. European uh, command in Stuttgart, Germany, as you know. Right. And before I go further, I have to make the obligatory statement that any opinions expressed by me are my personal opinions and not necessarily those of the U.S. Department of Defense. Thank you, Colonel Richter. So we'll begin with the situation in Ukraine. The focus has been on near-term solutions to the immediate challenge Russia poses in the region. Your article reminds us, though, that remediating structural weaknesses in the international security system can mitigate future problems. Your article centers on a persistent challenge we face in our foreign military sales, that of Russian influence during the time between the sale and the actual delivery. Please tell us more about this. You know, as you really point out the question, um, the fact is that once a, we say a letter of offer and acceptance is signed and that agreement is made to acquire systems. And so if a country's switching from, say, this legacy system like a, a MiG-29 uh, aircraft and they're going to switch to F-16 aircrafts, I mean, there's just there's that very real uh, time that's required just obviously for the case development uh, after the agreement is made. But that also includes production, delivery, that's training of the pilots on the aircraft. And, and it really is just a transition required, too, because oftentimes you'll see these air forces or, or army, if we're talking about uh, you know, rotary wing aircraft, they will purchase perhaps a smaller number of aircraft. And they're still using these in conjunction with these Soviet legacy systems. Or maybe they're going to transition entirely. But we're often talking about realistically, about a five-year, at a minimum, time frame where after they've agreed that they're going to be purchasing these NATO interoperable systems through the U.S., through the foreign military sales program, there's probably about a five-year time frame where they're going to still be dependent on these Soviet legacy systems. Hmm. And so, and it's just talking about the fact that while they're purchasing these aircraft and coming up with the, and we're providing everything that's required for that, there is a requirement, I guess, really, I guess to say, to assist with that transition. As you mentioned in your article, um, this is affecting a number of countries. Yeah. So one of the examples that I used was Slovakia, where they had agreed to purchase a F-16 aircraft. And especially, say, with the UH-60s, where they're still reliant on those MI-17 aircraft. And then those aircraft require maintenance. And so that requires sometimes it's going to require contracts that are made with the Russian manufacturer. And so that we've seen that go on quite a bit. And then the other piece is that there is a concern that countries want to stay, how do I say this? They want to stay legal. They want to make sure that they're meeting the airworthiness certification and that they're working with that original equipment manufacturer to ensure that they're fueling safe aircraft, that they're still operating in a safe capacity. But the issue being that those certificates are still controlled by that Russian manufacturer. And so oftentimes, once the country's agreed to come over and use these interoperable aircraft, 
they're actually in that position where now they're going back to the Russian equipment manufacturer, dealing with the Russian government and trying to maintain that aircraft just to make sure that they keep that capability in their country. It's complicated, I'm sure, on, on multiple levels. So in answer to this problem, you recommend three ways to address it, leveraging existing in-country capabilities, leveraging existing DOD partnerships, and rethinking the foreign military sales total package approach. Can you elaborate on your solutions to this vexing problem? Well, looking at these these issues, there's, there's certainly a lot of details that have got to be worked with this. But I think that we have to look at the assets we have, which really are tremendous. Yeah. Uh, currently, there are uh, maintenance, repair, and overhaul facilities located in uh, Bulgaria, the Czech Republic, Lithuania, Poland, Romania, and Slovakia that are capable of doing the maintenance on these aircraft. But there's often a hesitancy. There's a resistance within the countries to say, well, we can't rely on that facility to issue its own certification. We have to rely back on the certification coming from that Russian manufacturer. Now, this has been handled many different ways. In Poland, I uh, highlighted it as actually interesting where they've done work on MiG-29s that are just, they're used in Poland and those aircraft, they've actually gone ahead and issued their own certification. Then Slovakia, there's a LOTN, which is a uh, the aircraft facility in Trenchin, Slovakia. They did work on MI-17 helicopters for the Afghan Air Force. And those were done with the, they had certification that were expired, but they went ahead, they performed the work on those aircraft. And I highlighted that in those instances, that really did help minimize some of the Russian influence. And I don't think that there's just one solution maybe with looking at these maintenance, repair, overhaul facilities. And then ultimately too, I think there has to be a really a deliberate thought process on how much we're going to invest, say, in limping along some of these Soviet legacy systems. But at the same time, I don't think that we should neglect that asset that we have. And that that's just part of this broader approach. The other thing that you mentioned is uh, some of those partnerships that we have. With We've got now a strong rotational presence in Europe, both with the uh, U.S. Air Force as well as U.S. Army with, uh, with rotary wing assets. Uh, we've got the 1st Air Cavalry Brigade just began a nine-month rotation uh, supporting the uh, U.S. Army Atlantic Resolve in Europe. And, and then also... Uh, just looking this up here, the 336th uh, Fighter Squadron of the 4th Fighter Wing out of the Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in uh, North Carolina is part of uh, Castle Forge, working with Allied Air Forces. And so with these rotational units, that provides the potential in instances where we have Air Forces that have actually begun that transition to these U.S. systems, or maybe they don't have the access to those systems, maybe earlier access to these aircraft for maintaining pilot certifications after they've completed their initial training and just uh, maintaining their currency. And so that's a possibility, as well as I talked about the, the National Guard State Partnership Program. And so we got that with the Air National Guards, as well as U.S. Army National Guards. And we have these throughout Europe. And that's basically within all these formal Warsaw Pact countries all have a partnership with the National Guard. And 
these are really tremendous, uh, the, these partnerships, in that when you see exercises, operations happening inside Europe, more often than not, you're going to see the state partner in each of these countries. Because the fact is that we've gone to smaller and smaller forces that we have permanently assigned in Europe. And so the state partnership program really provides that persistent presence. Finally, you mentioned rethinking the foreign military sales total package approach. For, for those of us who are not familiar with that, can you discuss that a little bit? So with uh, foreign military sales, we talk about a total package approach being that if a country buys an aircraft, we're not just going to deliver the aircraft and leave it there. That when a country signs that contract, they're signing up to receive the aircraft. And then prior to receiving that aircraft, they're going to start getting personnel trained. Then gradually there's going to be equipment, ground support equipment uh, delivered that's all going to be part of that same package. Now, I mean, none of this is free. And so there's either it's financed through security assistance programs, but often through national funds that that country provides, that they provide with their own money. But they really get the guidance. And so it provides them with, with a path forward that they get the ground support equipment so they'll get the necessary maintenance. There's a training program that's included through the International Military Education Training Program. And so that we'll be training all the maintenance personnel as well as pilots and also training people just that are logisticians that are, you know, that need to order parts and take care of those aircraft. Then we're going to provide the assistance with the delivery of the aircraft. There's going to be mobile training teams included with that delivery of the aircraft as that they arrive to, to ensure that these new units are you know, establishing you know, a training program within themselves so that they can maintain pilot currency, operate safely. So that's what the total package approach provides. But as comprehensive as that is, the challenge is that I think when you look at a country, say a country didn't have any capabilities, and so that you're providing that to them, well, that's pretty comprehensive and that's going to cover everything. But where you go into these countries and that they've had these legacy, they have these air forces that you know go back decades and are operating with Soviet legacy equipment. And it's not as simple as just waiting and slowly accepting that U.S. capability, because while that's happening, what's going to happen to their ability to conduct air policing? And so one of the things I was looking at is just how can we provide some type of transition to help them? One, you're talking about just sort of speeding up that process so that we can try to shrink that window of time where I talk about that five-year program where once they've basically officially declared and committed themselves to this NATO interoperable system, but yet they're still trying to maintain the Soviet legacy. How can we provide the assistance so that they're not just off on their own trying to deal with, well, frankly, with Russia? And I talk about some of the issues that that can arise if you've got a country that's getting F-16 aircraft and they're receiving those aircraft and at the same time maintaining MiG-29 and and then you've got Russian service personnel showing up and then, you know, there's aircraft from proximity of each other that obviously creates all types of issues. So any way that we can, that we can help shrink that transition period and really just provide a better way forward that we can accelerate that process. And then frankly, just even, I didn't discuss it in the article. I mean, just even if you're talking about disposable of the aircraft, but just really, but just this broader way to transition away from one system into another.
we have a transition that's happening within Europe, where within NATO, as NATO enlarged, there was a push for countries to develop more niche capabilities and to focus on providing these niche capabilities, whether that could be, you know, NBC, nuclear biological chemical teams or or some, you know, some smaller capability as part of a of these multinational task force. They're really working towards uh, addressing crisis response in expeditionary operations. But right now there's just a return and it really is it's a return back to this idea of having full spectrum military forces that are capable of providing their own national and contributing to collective defense, collective alliance defense. And so this critical need that we have interoperable systems, especially with these major air combat systems, so that when we talk about the full spectrum of conflict, that we have capable militaries that are able to contribute to that national and that collective a national defense. Prior to working in a security assistance, I was privileged to work at a special operations command. And I'm not a special operator, but arriving there, like any other person that was not a special operator, I actually attended a two-week uh, course that provided us with education talking about special operations. And one of the things that we had to learn there was the five soft special operations forces truths. And they talk about humans, more important than hardware, Quality is better than quantity. Special operations forces cannot be mass produced. And then competent special operations forces cannot be created after emergencies occur. And most special operations require non-soft assistance. Well, the two that I'd like to highlight is just that humans are more important than hardware. And competent special operations forces cannot be created after emergencies. Well, frankly, that applies to a lot of the forces that we're talking about now, I mean, if we're talking about combat systems with air combat systems or any of these combat systems. And one of the things that uh, Admiral McRaven, who was the commander when I was there, used to talk about was that you can't surge trust. And the fact is that we have to take the time now working with our allies and establishing these interoperability. And one of the tools that we have, and I talked about it briefly, was this uh, IMET, this International Military Education Training Program. And the fact is where we have worked with partners and allies in providing that education and working to have interoperability on these major systems, this is where we have our greatest success because ultimately we can't do this alone. And I think now as we look to the future and we look at the changing security landscape in Europe, we need allies with fully capable militaries that are capable across the full spectrum of conflict. And it is really just, it's more important now than ever that we do whatever we can to assist, to work towards greater interoperability with those forces. And I don't think we're going to necessarily have this opportunity right now because we're just at this inflection point where so many of these militaries are requiring these major overhauls of these major systems. And at the same time, it is an important opportunity. And I talked about this in the article. I said that, you know, we're at this inflection point and we shouldn't waste this opportunity. And the fact is, this is the time 
This is the time that we have now to work on these alliances and these partnerships and to make it stronger and to work towards maintaining that vision of a Europe whole, free, and at peace. Thank you so much, Colonel Richter. I appreciate your thoughts and your time today sharing with us about this extremely important issue. And especially you were on the front lines over there in, in Germany. Do you have any closing thoughts? I think that uh, I think that about wraps it up, Laura. Now, thank you so much for having me. It really is a, uh, a pleasure to speak with you today. And I'm just, I'm really appreciative of your interest in this topic. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tailwinds, the Air and Space Operations Review Podcast. 